What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Okay. I want you to tell me what these fellas look like. Well, the little guy, he was kind of funny looking. In what way? I don't know, just funny looking. Can you be any more specific? I couldn't really say. Funny looking is a perfectly good way to describe, say, Steve Buscemi in Fargo, or countless other memorable characters that make up the Coen Brothers universe. With Hail Caesar, the Coen's latest, currently in theaters, we consider the whole funny-looking bunch and force ourselves to pick our top five favorite Coen Brothers characters. Plus our review of Hail Caesar, and much more. Go Bears! Ahead on Film Spotting. Film Spotting is once again supported by Squarespace and Josh. Currently, I'm afraid to say it, we're having a few issues with FilmSpotting.net. Really makes me wish that our website had been built many years ago on a platform as easy to use and as functional as Squarespace. It is the simplest way to create a compelling website. From the strange to the downright bizarre, great stories define us. You should tell yours, and with simple tools and templates, Squarespace can help you capture your story with a captivating website. Just start your free trial today. Visit squarespace.com film. Again, that's squarespace.com film. Squarespace, you should. We do love it when we hear from listeners and they offer a testimonial about their Squarespace site. And we got this email from Laura. I wanted to ask you if you'd give a shout out for my modern quilting website, birdsongmade.com. I created my custom quilting web space using Squarespace and have been beyond pleased with the results. When I heard that Squarespace had drag and drop tools that were easy to use and offered a film spotting discount, I was on it like a rat on a Cheeto. I made my little business's website in one evening and have since had visitors to the site ask me who I hired to create it. I tell them I hired myself and use Squarespace. I now have a professional-looking website and blog where my quilty customers can go to browse through images of my modern quilts and contact me about their custom quilt dreams. Birdsong Made makes all sizes of quilts with fresh fabrics and modern patterns for everyone from new moms wanting to snuggle their babies in style to college students needing a new quilt to fit their extra-long dorm mattress. Birdsong Made creates quilts by hand, technically by sewing machine, here in Chicagoland, often while the Film Spotting Podcast is playing in the background. Love it. Birdsongmade.com. And I'm glad you did find that, Josh, because that was in my list of testimonials about Squarespace and somehow overlooked it. I'm glad we were able to give Laura and her site, hopefully, a little bit of new business or people will at least check out the great thing she's doing, obviously telling her story, part of her story being her passion for quilting. Again, to start your free trial today, go to squarespace.com film. You're listening to Film Spotting. Over the years here on the show, we've reviewed a fair number of Coen Brothers movies. We've even at one point shared our top five Coen Brothers scenes, but I don't think we've had a bigger challenge than this week's top five. Inspired by Hail Caesar, we're going to share our top five Coen Brothers characters. We went back and forth a lot on oh, this. Did we ever. Should we have a pantheon of Coen characters? And that's kind of where we ended up going. Should we divide them up among leads, supporting, scene stealers? So many ways to approach it because they simply have so many, not just funny looking characters, but really memorable truly great characters high and level, it was tough high level diplomatic negotiations for sure we're done we compromised to to, though but we came to what i hope will result in good lists no wood chippers involved no at didn't all have to go that far 
First, though, George Clooney brings back the Caesar haircut. No, not for a feature film adaptation of ER, unfortunately. For the Coen brothers' latest ensemble comedy, Hail Caesar. Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. How long since your last confession, my son? 27 hours. It's really too often. You're not that bad. Here at Capitol Pictures, as you know, millions of people look to us for information and uplift and, yes, entertainment. And we're going to give it to them. And action. An army of technicians and actors and top-notch artistic people are working hard to bring to the screen our biggest release of the year. Hail Caesar is a prestige picture with one of the biggest stars in the world, Baird Whitlock. A truth we could see if we had, but... If we had... It's well known that I'm a skeptic when it comes to movies about movies, Adam. I've mentioned here and there on the show how I often find them to be too navel-gazing and self-congratulatory for my taste. Well, can we just pretend I never said anything like that? Yes, for our discussion of Joel and Ethan Cohen's Hail Caesar. Set at a fictional studio in 1950s Hollywood, Hail Caesar's many things. It's a rip-roaring ode to old-fashioned entertainment. I'm thinking of dancing, even swimming, lassoing as well. It's also a silly farce peppered with wordplay, innuendo, and wit. And it's a chronicle of spiritual crisis in which one man, Josh Brolin's studio fixer, Eddie Mannix, tries to find his ultimate purpose. But mostly, Hail Caesar is a creative clarion call to celebrate the way cinema can be all of these things, sometimes even at once. I see this as the Coen Brothers' Sullivan's Travels, a meta-comedy that wants to deflate the pretensions of Hollywood, even as it's giving the movies themselves a giant hug. It might just be their magnum opus. Mm. Now, you, Adam, can't get enough of movies about movies, and the Coen brothers are among your absolute favorite filmmakers. They are. Their last, Inside Lewin Davis, was your number one film of 2013. Mm -hmm. What's more, you sat right next to me during Hail Caesar for a film spotting double date night, Mm -hmm. and I heard quite a bit of laughing in between my own guffaws. (laughs) So in the Adam Kempinar pantheon of movies about movies, where does Hail Caesar stand? Great question. Had a feeling you might go there, though, of course, that was a feeling I had after I realized that you were doing the setup for this week. I had another one of those brain cramps where I thought I was setting you up, and appropriately, Josh, I was going to go in a similar direction and bring up how you are notoriously not that into meta movies or movies about movies. So I wanted to see maybe what it was about what the Coen brothers are doing here in Hail Caesar that made you have a change of heart. I'm sure we'll get into your thoughts here in a little bit. But in terms of actually trying to rank it against other movies about movies, which I suppose is trivial, but also a little bit of fun and helps us set up this conversation. The last time I did a top five movies about movies, I had Sullivan's Travels in there, which I agree is a great comparison. I had Sunset Boulevard, Singing in the Rain, and Mulholland Drive. And that actually didn't include Barton Fink in that top five, which I would rate ahead of this movie, at least Hmm. right now. So Hail Caesar, at this point, after one viewing, is not going to replace any of those five movies that I just mentioned. It's also not going to replace, for me, a couple of movies that are decidedly not about Hollywood, but nevertheless are movies about movies. A couple of films from our contemporary Iranian cinema marathon. You know how much I love Jafar Panahi's The Mirror, but also Kiristami's Close Up. So behind those films, 
but it would have to be in the conversation, certainly an honorable mention. And I do think it fits with something you were saying last week when we did our top five comedies about the rich, tying in with Elaine May's A New Leaf, where sometimes with the top five, it's not about just how good or how great the movie is, but how appropriately it fits the topic. This is a case where I think this movie is very good. It, in fact, may come to be one of my favorite Coen Brothers movies. Right now, for me, Josh, it's similar to A Serious Man. And I think the movie is similar to Hmm. A Serious Man in a lot of thematic ways, where that was a film that I very much enjoyed, but probably respected a little bit more than really was engrossed in and ultimately entertained by. But then I saw it a second time, and I saw it a third time as I taught it in my class last summer at the University of Chicago's Graham School, which was a class focusing on movies that deal with spiritual crises. And I love that film. I adore that movie now. But I think there is a case, and you tell me if I'm wrong, Josh, with Coen Brothers films in particular, where the movies feel a little bit like puzzles. And so sometimes, even if you're enjoying it, you're still very engaged in a process of putting the pieces together and trying to see what it adds up to. And sometimes that can actually be a little bit distracting, maybe, from just getting caught up in the film itself. But then you see a serious man, as I said, a second time, a third time. Now I marvel at some of the dialogue and some of the acting and basically all the jokes in the film. I have a feeling Hail Caesar would be very much a film like that for me, where it would only be a richer experience on a second or third viewing. But as I was saying, regardless of how good it is, just in terms of being a movie about the movies, that concept encompasses so many different types of films. Sometimes they can be movies that are very much about L.A. or movies about Hollywood. It can be about the system. It can be about the studios themselves. Or they're movies that are about the process of making a movie. Or sometimes they're A Star is Born and they're about aspiring actors. Or maybe it's an aspiring writer, like in the case of Barton Fink. Hail Caesar Less so a movie about L.A., despite some of the really beautiful Malibu vistas and some of the locations that Roger Deakins and the Coen brothers shoot. Not so much that type of film, but it's all of those other types of Hollywood films in one. And the one part that really stands out for me as maybe the most rewarding is the attention to the process, the process of making movies, right? The scenes in this film where they showcase Various actors, a lot of big stars, people like Scarlett Johansson, like Channing Tatum, like, of course, George Clooney, who has a bigger role in this film than the other two. Or even, as I'm sure we'll talk about Alden Ehrenreich, a star-making turn in a performance that's a star-making performance, right, where he is doing these cowboy-type pictures. They aren't just given... 30 seconds or a minute to give us a sense of what those actors are up to and set the table for something else and all the other plot that's going on. The movie stops. Hail Caesar, the film the Coen brothers are making, really stops and takes a detour at every one of these filmmaking sequences to give us a sense of the whole spirit of what making this movie would be like. So we don't just watch part of a number. We watch an entire musical number where the sailors that Channing Tatum leads up very homoerotically express their disappointment that they're about to go out to sea and not have any dames around or the mermaid number where Scarlett Johansson, the process and the really fine details of the process are clearly something the Corn Brothers decided to explore and flesh out and to our benefit. And in the process of paying attention to that process, what do they do? They make us wish that we could, at least I wished, that I could watch the entire films that they're showing Sometimes us. Sometimes you know, for sure. Both of those, mm-hmm. the Scarlett Johansson one and the Channing Tatum one, I would have loved to have seen the feature length version. And I think that's because they do give so much time to it. And uh, 
it speaks a lot to the proper narrative at hand that I was eager to get back into that still. They weren't just diversions that sure. were better than what the movie is doing exactly. overall. And what is the movie doing overall? Yes, it's about Hollywood. It's about the filmmaking process. I think it's asking this question, why do we even bother to make movies? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that fits in with the existential concerns that the Coens always have layered into their films, sometimes more obviously, as in the case with A Serious Man, which is a good pairing, didn't strike me that way at first, but now that you mentioned it, it's a very good pairing with Hail Caesar. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's buried a little bit more underneath the laughs, as it is here or in something like Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? So, yeah, the question of why was I able to get past, I, you know, it shouldn't be something that I have to get past, but the fact that I'm not instantly on board when there's a movie about movies or a meta film necessarily, I think in this case, and Barton Fink works similarly for me as well, which is the most obvious pairing with Hail Caesar being Capital Pictures. Yeah, reference yes, to both, I know. Right? I love that. Yeah. I think it's because neither of those are pretentious at all in exploring how the movies work or what they are about. Yeah. And in fact, Barton Fink is a movie specifically about undercutting those pretensions. Exactly. And yeah. I think a lot of Hail Caesar is as well. It, so it's lampooning, but affectionately. It's uh, self-deprecating. Mm-hmm. In a way, and I think it's, you know, it's what I said at the start. There's there's at once this wanting to deflate the self-importance of this system, um, whether it's the star system or, I mean, th- they spend time exploring so many systems here. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's even the editing, time giving to the editing suite. I love that sequence as well with Francis McDormand. And, but they don't. It's more that they're interested in how all of those moving parts somehow in a way that can't be explained. I mean, it's cornball, but at the end of this movie, you realize it is magic mm-hmm. because these are craftspeople who yeah. they know what to do and they can do their job well and they do it right. And everyone can do that along the line. And you might still end up with a piece of junk. Mm-hmm. But somehow when everything just manages to click and this happens in that editing suite yeah. that I'm talking about, we right. probably shouldn't give away what they see there, but it's out of everyone's hands when that manages to click. We understand what this person did to help it and what that person might have done, what that star might have mm-hmm. to bring to the scene, but it's out of everyone's hand how there's this half second of magic on the screen. And I think that is what this movie and the Coens are really wanting to celebrate here um, rather than, you know, making some snarky takedown about Mm -hmm. the pretensions of Hollywood or say something self-impressed about a filmmaker's own role in that process. Yeah, absolutely. You're listening to Film Spotting. We're discussing the new film from the Coen brothers, Hail Caesar. Probably would have been a better choice, Josh, considering how much we both like this movie to have reviewed it before it came out, because it could have used any kind of boost whatsoever. Unfortunately, I saw the headline today, the biggest flop of the Coen Brothers' career since Intolerable Cruelty. And what did I say to you when the lights yeah, came Yeah, you up? did. Literally, the first thing you said was, oh, that's going to be a flop. <laughs> and it's true. You're right. It's nothing, like no what the, yeah, it. it's nothing like what the trailer is selling. That's absolutely true. And then at the same time, it does have not only the puzzle aspect to it, but just this deep existential it's reservoir to it, right? It's it's a heavy movie, which doesn't mean there aren't hilarious parts. There are many very funny scenes, but you can't talk about a Coen Brothers movie, it seems, without talking about, as you put it, existential struggles. And one of the things that struck me, and I'm very much still trying to piece this together on the first viewing, but I just recently watched the American Masters on Mike Nichols right. that Elaine May directed. We talked about it last week on the show, in conjunction with May, we kind of promoted that it was available on PBS, and I was able to set aside an hour and watch it. 
And it's really good and absolutely worth seeing if you are able to see it. And part of the reason why it's so good is just because of Mike Nichols. He's just one of those guys who everybody throughout the course of the movie describes as the smartest guy they ever knew. And a lot of the movie, you're just watching him talk. And that's enough. There are that many little insights and nuggets that just really make you think. And he talks at one point about what making a movie is like, what the process is like. And he basically says, it's a constant stream of asking yourself, how am I going to get myself out of this mess? The dialogue's bad. The staging is bad. The acting is bad. It's all wrong. But maybe if I move this actor here, mm-hmm. and I'm totally paraphrasing this. He says it much better, but I couldn't find it today. Maybe if I move this actor here, if I change these lines of dialogue around, if I put the camera over there, we might just save ourselves. So the way he describes making a movie, it's not very glamorous at all, Josh. It's a case where you're constantly trying to just keep yourself from drowning. Problem solving. Yeah. And inevitably, you do pull yourself up out of the water and you live to dive back in again. So, again, doesn't sound all that great, but the way Nichols describes it, he suggests basically that it really isn't that terrible because at least in the movies you can save yourself. You get to maneuver the parts to your will. And he adds that it makes living real life actually more challenging because, of course, you don't have that type of control. So this is part of the allure for the director in making a movie. And I actually think this is potentially Josh Brolin, his character, Eddie Mannix, Hmm. running the studio. This is his dilemma. This is his existential dilemma, right? Is He's not just worrying, though, about one set of actors or one scene or one movie. He's trying to maneuver the pieces on 10, 20, 30 productions at once, hundreds of crew members at least, hundreds of actors. He's responsible for all of them and for, I think the Coen brothers make this clear, he's responsible for all of their sins, too. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you had any sense of this watching it, but it's tempting looking back over the course of the movie to actually see the Eddie Mannix character as a sort of God figure. And in some ways he is because you could look at all those crew members and cast members and think they're like his flock and they're out there all behaving according to their own free will. Right. But I actually see him as a really interesting Christ figure in the movie because you get the sense that he's decided to bear those sins for all of those crew members and cast members, everyone on that lot, he's going to suffer for them. And then through him, with that magic that somehow comes out of all that at the end, as you said, they can all achieve a type of immortality. But he's got to suffer for them. And of course, he can't be God because we know that Nick Skank is well, really right. God. That's what the, I... guy, the guy in New York who's on the phone yes. who really makes things happen, that's God. Yeah. I mean, I like that because there's a ton of Jesus in this movie, for one a thing, ton. Which, which isn't unusual for the Coen brothers. He always seems to be sneaking into their films. And that's one thing that I still have to unpack and will probably require a second viewing to to totally do that. But the problem with Brolin as a God figure is that he does have someone to report to. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like he's he is this in-between. He's between the guys writing the checks, the studio heads, and the creative types who are doing the work. Mm-hmm. And take him out of there and it all falls apart yes. because he's the facilitator. He's a facilitator. And, and they have a conversation along these lines very directly about yeah. the difference between God and Jesus yeah, in the film exactly. at one point. So he's that character. Yeah. But I think he, you know, the weight he's bearing to me has to do with, it goes back to this question of 
why are we making these movies? Why are we bothering? Mm-hmm. And we should say Brolin is sneakily funny here because he bears he's, this he's weight so good. very lightly. Yes. All, but, so you feel but the import, there. but you're not like, oh. Yeah, I want to talk comes, about it. Yeah. When he comes on screen, you're not like, oh, here comes the serious part. Here comes the serious part, but he's he wears it very, mm-hmm. very lightly. And I think what he's balancing is this job that it's long hours dealing with all these persnickety personalities, difficult personalities, <laughs> low pay, and he has this offer out there from Lockheed right. Corporation. They want to hire him away. It's lucrative. It would be better hours. Basically, it's a no-brainer that he should take that. So what he's deciding is between this offer or staying at the movies. Mm-hmm. And and it's tied into the major problem Eddie has to fix, which is George Clooney characters, his kidnapping mm-hmm. um, by this group who's associated with communists and that's a whole nother rabbit hole that the movie goes down that would be well worth chasing but for the surface narrative it puts eddie mannix in this position where he's kind of between uh, this rigid ideology you know these communists Mm -hmm. or he has this ruthless capitalist endeavor of lockheed and he's trying to say to himself do i have to go one way or the other you know where do i give i've got all of this bearing down on me right and where do i give and i think what you know, what he seems to find is that there's something purer in the movies, yeah. I think. It, it's, you know, the movies. As vulgar as it is. As vulgar as it is. Yeah. And as much as it encompasses both those things, mm-hmm. it's a capitalist enterprise with ideology, right? Movies have all of that. But for him, there's something pure about it. And we see that purity when we go visit those sets that yeah. you're talking about. We see it when. During the Channing Tatum sequence, when they're tap dancing on a tabletop and they don't miss a step, there's something so magical about that, that for Eddie Mannix, that's enough about the movies. You know, that's where, as he says at one point, in reference to something else, the picture has worth. That's the worth to him. So he's getting caught in between these larger existential ideals. And to him, it's that magical moment. And uh, he's doing whatever he can. He's that one cog in the machine. Yeah. To do his part to make the magic happen. Absolutely. And speaking about Brolin and his performance here, I don't want to pigeonhole an actor. I think he's very talented and dynamic and has a lot of range. But I was thinking about why I loved him here and why I loved him as Lewin Moss in No Country for Old Men from the Coen Brothers, but didn't so much in a movie like Sicario. And don't get me wrong, I think he's fine there, but I didn't enjoy him as much as I did in the other two movies. In Sicario, he's the kind of loose, smart-ass character often has a sucker in his mouth, walking around in flip-flops. But I think Brolin's just the most magnetic he can be on screen when he's the guy who's a little more stoic, when he's someone who has the presence of someone who's a little haunted, who's burdened by secrets. And then, of course, it hit me thinking about this earlier today. In Hail Caesar, he's burdened with all the secrets, mm-hmm, right. right? He has every secret in this town, every person on his lot, he's the one who knows every single one of them and has to often correct them in some way or do something about those secrets before they actually become public information. And I'll throw this out there too, not meant to be a slight on the other actor, but to the point that I think Brolin's a very capable actor who shouldn't just always play those types of characters. I think he could just as easily have played George Clooney's goofball actor part here and probably been just as good, if not better. I'm not sure that Clooney has the darkness and that haunted quality to him that Brolin has that would have made him be able to pull off Eddie. 
Yeah, it's it's hard to say. I mean, I, I always go back to Michael Clayton as uh, as thinking you're right. Looney as an actor who can surprise us. But I see where you're coming from. But also Brolin in Inherent Vice. I mean, this is I know this very is funny. Very, it's, yeah, the Inherent Vice role there is almost haunted. The Clooney part here, right? You know, where he's kind of kind of a dim bulb a little bit. Yeah, but he a has little more bit. Power in Inherent. Yes, Vice. he does. Anyway, here here Brolin is great and um, it and it's crucial because that is the part where the meat of the movie is is with this Eddie Mannix character but I think we should probably get to the performer who just yeah. runs away with this film and <laughs> crazy and what's impressive about it is because there's not a performance here that I don't enjoy. I mean, right. some of them are stronger than others, but it's not like there wasn't competition for Alden Ehrenreich as this up-and-coming cowboy actor, Hobie Doyle. And it's not just that he gets such great scenes, but that they're different types of scenes. You could probably choose your favorite, but mm-hmm. I think mine might be. He gets a real crucial money moment in the film that maybe we shouldn't spoil. I think mine is a little a side scene. Oh, we're going to play a little part of it later. <laughs> okay. Spoiler alert. Oh, well, yeah, that with, uh, yeah, with Ray Fiennes. With that's, Ray Fiennes. Yeah, that's not giving too much away. Okay. I think it's in the second trailer. And it's it's the it funniest is. scene. You're right. It's, it's, yeah, it's the funniest I scene. I mean, it's it's a Pantheon-level Coen Brothers scene. It's that funny. Let's let's just get to it. it it's where Ray Fiennes' director is trying to coach Hobie Doyle away from he's his not a good talker. Draw. Yeah, he's used to just riding into, horses. Into this high society chamber picture right and it's just not going well and it's like a who's on first routine between yeah. the two of them back and forth and um i almost would say i did not see that trailer clip of it i didn't either the film. i didn't either and i'm and glad i, I didn't so glad yeah, so it caught me totally if by you surprise haven't seen it avoid the trailers and you'll enjoy it all the more so yeah aaron reich is hysterical in that scene but he also has there's a real earnestness to this character this is a guy who came into hollywood with has to be there really nothing but you know goodwill and a few talents. He can lasso. And so the scene I was going to get to is where he has this studio-arranged date mm-hmm. with another up-and-coming, in this case a starlet, yeah. modeled after Carmen Miranda. And he's waiting for her to come out of her Beverly Hills mansion on the street. And he just starts lassoing to pass mm-hmm. the time. And she comes out. And again, he's so genial. She says, I'm sorry I'm late. No problem. And they have this nice conversation where he asks her about her talent, mm-hmm. balancing things on her head. Right. And she shows him that. It's and sweet. there is yeah. such genuine appreciation for these simple entertaining mm-hmm. skills that they both have. But I think that's what this movie is, you know, is really getting down to is that sometimes the movies are as wonderful as yeah. this. And that's and, all you need. And these someone who can execute that act. Execute that act mm-hmm. and make this moment of magic. So Aaron Reich pulls that scene off. He pulls the scene off with Ray Fiennes and yeah. really everyone he's in, right? Yeah, he really does. He's a stunner. He's just an absolute stunner in this movie. And I am going to talk a little bit more about him later, so I'll save some of this. But as I alluded to, what's really so magical about his performance and how it weaves into the meta aspects of what the Coen brothers are doing here is that we do get to watch a star being born. And I certainly hope he does go on to bigger and better things playing a star being born. So you're hyper aware of that as you're watching it, but almost like as if you were an audience member in the 1950s watching a Hobie Doyle movie, watching him come onto the screen and perform, just exist on camera. Mm -hmm. He is so naturally good on camera, and he's got a unique look to begin with, and we've seen him once before. And I can look back now on the movie Stoker and remember him as the character who has a key scene with Mia Vasakovska, just based on the fact that he does have such a unique look, but otherwise didn't know who he was, didn't know about his performance in Stoker until I looked at the IMDb credits. But he has that unique face, and I do want to talk about how the Coen brothers are so good with those funny-looking faces. 
But then you add to it the way Roger Deakins as a cinematographer and the Coen brothers know how to use that face. Then add on to that his combination of his ease in front of the camera, his unease in front of the camera when he needs to use it to serve him comedically, his great comedic timing, and then those physical attributes, the ability with the horse, the lasso. There was just that sense of discovery watching him Mm -hmm. that is something I feel like we all go to the movies for. You talk about that magic of going to see... Maybe back in the 50s, they were going more often to see people who were already the big star. They wanted to see Clark Gable on screen. They wanted to see Ginger Rogers or Fred Astaire or whoever. But there was also that aspect of seeing someone who was the next big thing. And I felt like we were watching the next big thing as he was playing the next big thing. And that's pretty wondrous. But those faces, this will get in more a little bit as a setup to our top five and our favorite characters. They have always had the Coen brothers such a knack for putting great faces on screen. How many characters could we mention, maybe not by character name or performer's name even, who stand out just because of their look? I go back to a serious man. Marshak's secretary. I had to look it up. Her name's Claudia Wilkins. She may have one line of dialogue, but pretty much she just sits there and looks up from her desk at Larry Gopnik, Michael Stuhlbarg, and just stares daggers through him. Mm-hmm. And it makes you laugh just looking at her. And Hail Caesar, I think, has 15 faces like that. Well, how about Sometimes, the, the writer, the group The group of writers. writers. I was exactly going to say that. <laughs> Every the communist writers, some of those are faces <laughs> that are a little familiar. Mm-hmm. Some are very familiar, maybe one or two. Some are not familiar at all. And then you have other people like Heather Goldenhurst, who plays the secretary to Eddie Mannix, who's really good and has an interesting face that I've never seen before. The other one that stands out, we go back to the great scene with... Hobie Doyle, as he is getting direction from Ray Fiennes. How about the actress? Yes. Right? The actress that he's acting opposite, who embodies everything a 50s star of her type would embody. She just has the perfect look. She nails the lines. I wasn't able to look her name up ahead of time, but she reminded me so much of someone like Moira Shearer from The Red Shoes, right? And so the fact that the Coen brothers were able to find that perfect face, that perfect look to inhabit all these roles... It just speaks to what makes them so great as filmmakers. And, of course, some of those nods to classic Hollywood. You mentioned the Carmen Miranda character named Carlotta Valdez, which immediately did hit me as a name, a key name from Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo. So the movie is filled with lovely little touches like that. Yeah, I mean, you could play a game of matching all the names to actual Hollywood characters Mm -hmm. or People, performers. Emily Beecham, I just looked up, is the actress you were thinking of who's opposite Alden Ehrenreich. She's great. Just just fantastic. And again, like two or three scenes. And that Mm -hmm. sequence as well on the set with uh, Ray Fiennes as the director. And when we revisit it later and see footage from it, it's this is almost like a mini film school because you see there how you think like just a different camera angle, nothing dramatic, nothing showy, but just seeing a sequence from a one different angle can make a huge difference. For sure. And we understand that here because we see on the set and then we see in the editing suite. And it's interesting also, there's a recurring visual motif the Coens use that kind of emphasize that almost every time we visit one of these sound stages where we get a shot that while the film within the film is being recorded, so the cameras are rolling, we get a shot that both encompasses the acting or the performance right. and one little element of outside of that movie world. So the example will be on the set of Hail Caesar where George Clooney is giving a speech. We're looking at him from below from an extra's perspective and past yeah. his head, we see the ceiling of the soundstage. Uh-huh. And it's similar during the Channing Tatum 
dance sequence, the camera pulls back and we see the floor of this bar where they're dancing. All these pieces come together mid-dance out of the camera's view, but we can see it now to match onto the floor where they're about to jump and finish their routine. Mm-hmm. And I just love how, you know, how I don't know how intentional or exactly the decision behind it, but how they managed to give us a glimpse both of how the film within the film is going to look when it's done right. and how they're making it mm-hmm. in the moment. Yeah, absolutely. Hail Caesar is out now in wide release. People aren't going to see it. We think you should all rush to go see it. And if you do and agree or disagree with our takes, you can email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. We're going to stay in the Rome of Hail Caesar, well, a theatrically restaged version of it anyway, when we play Massacre Theater next. Then we'll jump right into our lists of our favorite Cohen characters. Stay with us. So I got a little lonely Down on memory lane I was headed down a one-way When I hit the brakes But a half an hour later Welcome back to Film Spotting, a clip there from the trailer for the new horror film, The Witch. It's a movie that we actually have some passes to give away. Josh, people who are here in Chicago and want to check out that film during its run of engagement when it opens February 19th, you can go to filmspotting.net and get more information about how to enter. And somehow, after you told me that it would probably scare the crap out of me Mm -hmm. and I wouldn't be man enough to review it, Mm -hmm. we managed to find guest hosts for next week's show. How did that happen? Well, it truly just was serendipity. It wasn't by design. I was all set to talk about The Witch with you, Josh, but actually we're both going to be off and we're going to have the very great, very talented Tasha Robinson from The Next Picture Show and Michael Phillips from the Chicago Tribune sit in. They will be our proxies and endure all of the horror 
for us, Josh, and they'll review The Witch on next week's show. I'm going to try to force you to watch it because I think— Oh, I want to see it. I think it might be a Golden Brick potential candidate. Okay. So um, it has a lot of those qualities we look for. So, yeah, you're going to be suffering through The Witch Okay. in well, a good way, in a good way. Well, my wife doesn't— get out to the movies very often, so you might have to go with me Okay, just to, to comfort me, Josh, because I'm a scaredy cat. I'm not going to hold your hand like Sarah would, though. Okay. Well, I think we can get around that. Again, Tasha and Michael will talk about it next week. They will also share their Oscar picks on that show. In addition to The Witch, we're also giving away some passes to a film I am very eager to see, the Oscar-nominated Best Feature Documentary Award. We're giving away Admit Two Passes to an advanced screening. That's Thursday, February 18th here in Chicago. So if you want to see it for free and see it ahead of time, you can do that. Go to filmspotting.net for more. And Josh, we don't even have the details out yet, but I believe we just got a notice today about the opportunity to give away some passes to the upcoming movie Race, the Jesse Owens Owens biopic biopic that is also opening here soon. And those will be run of engagement passes as well. So our local Chicago listeners have a bevy of opportunities to check out some free films coming up here soon. Again, just go to filmspotting.net. At filmspotting.net is also where you will find our current poll question. Michael and Tasha will share the results next week on the show. We asked you which veteran actor and first-time Oscar nominee are you going to be rooting for on Oscar night. Josh, the options were? Brian Cranston for his performance in Trumbo, Jennifer Jason Leigh for her performance in The Hateful Eight, Charlotte Rampling, who was the star of 45 Years, or Mark Rylance from Bridge of Spies. It is right now mostly a battle for second place between Charlotte Rampling and Mark Rylance. That's a surprise. It is Jennifer Jason Leigh who is right now in the lead. And probably due to the fact that of those four films, Surely The Hateful Eight was certainly the most seen, I would say, among film spotting listeners anyway, probably probably more widely seen than Bridge of Spies and 45 Years in Trumbo weren't all that available, nor did they get that much exposure. So could be due to that, but also due to the fact that Jennifer Jason Leigh is an incredibly talented actress. You can still help sway the vote. Go now to filmspotting.net. And if you leave a comment in the poll, please let us know where you're listening from. A couple other random notes here. Josh, actually three of them. We got an email today from Blake Duff in Idaho who wanted to remind us, I think actually we got this maybe just last night as we're taping, reminding us that Taxi Driver's 40th birthday is today in case we didn't know. Okay. So this rung a bell. I remember something about Taxi Driver and anniversaries. If you are a fan of that film, I don't know how great the review is, but way back on episode 341 of Film Spotting, turns out it would have been Taxi Driver's 35th anniversary. It was 2011. Dana Stevens was on the show, and we did discuss Taxi Driver in some detail. So sort of a pre-Sacred Cow, Sacred Cow. That's exactly exactly what it was, yes. We also got a note just earlier tonight, Josh, from William Evans. I don't know if you had a chance to check this out, but he said, just wanted to share this link with Adam regarding The Big Short. Kevin B. Lee talks about why The Big Short should win Best Picture. Another person in your corner. Another person in my corner, indeed. And of course, this is a little bit selfish, but the reality is over the years here, at least the past couple of years, I have taken time on the show to mention these great video essays that Kevin B. Lee does over at Fandor.com. The fact that he's in Chicago and he still hasn't been on our show is an oversight that we really need to remedy soon. But he does these great videos where he breaks down the key Oscar categories, obviously with images, with text, with sound, with his commentary, and really dives in and explains why he is picking 
one performance over another or one film over another. And he doesn't really get into the other films. He just spends a good six and a half minutes really breaking down the big short, really insightfully saying why it's a great film. And I hope some people, including you, Josh, who didn't like it nearly as much, will give it a chance and devote the six and a half minutes to it. Now, it's not a case where we're in lockstep the whole way. We are when it comes to the big short. He does at one point refer to The Wolf of Wall Street as totally hypocritical, which you'll appreciate, Josh. Mm. So I may disagree with him a little bit there, but everything he says about the big short, I really do think is dead on. So I'm going to link to that in our show notes at filmspotting.net and hope some people will give it a shot. As someone who still needs to be convinced, I will check it out. Okay. Last note, tying in with Kevin B. Lee in the big short, of course, directed by Adam McKay. And I've mentioned recently on the show how next week, this is why I won't be able to do the show with you, Josh, and we'll have Tasha and Michael sitting in. I will be in New York City, and I've had a few listeners already reach out to see if there will be some kind of film spotting meetup. And I'm only going to be there Tuesday night, not going to have a ton of time, but I'm definitely looking to grab a drink with some listeners who are there. Scott Hamm in Centerport, New York, reached out, and longtime listeners, father and son, both living in New York City, Jake Meltzer and... Kurt Meltzer are there as well. So Jake and Kurt were so nice. They found out about an event where Adam McKay and Michael Lewis, who wrote the book, The Big Short, are doing a Q&A on Tuesday night at the DGA Theater. And they were nice enough to get me a ticket, asked me if I wanted to go along. Of course, I wanted to go along. Now, Josh, as you recall, I said the only thing that might possibly keep me from going to this Q&A or really doing anything else in New York City that night was if I could somehow score a ticket to Hamilton. Yeah, you sort of begged for a ticket. Ask Hamilton me, ask on me, a recent show. ask me if I'm going to go to the Adam McKay Michael Lewis Q&A. You got a ticket? I got a ticket. Oh, I'm going. Wow. <laughs> I'm going. I can't blame you. I'm going. I would be there. Yeah, it's going to be tough to jealous. pass up, but I'm I think jealous. that maybe seeing Hamilton on Broadway could be a once-in-a-lifetime experience. So I will be there, but that wasn't just to rub it in your mm-hmm. face. That was partly to rub it in your yeah. face, Josh. But really, it was to just let listeners know, again, Tuesday night, the 16th, if you're listening via podcast before the 16th, I'll be in New York. I would love to catch a drink somewhere. I'm open to a meetup. Details haven't been set, but... Prior to that night, we will set the details. You'll find them at filmspotting.net. I'll put it in the top stories whenever we do settle on a location and a time, whenever Hamilton lets out, and I'll also share on social media. Do you want listeners to just hang out like in the alley behind the theater and wait for you? Wait to, for me? Wait for you Could to they make your too? exit. And, yeah, I'm sure they'd love to do that. <laughs> I, I love this. I can picture that all happening, Josh. Let's move on to Massacre Theater. More cheering for me, I'm sure, is going to ensue. This is the part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance at winning a prize. A couple weeks back, Adam and I massacred this scene. If you don't get out of here now, you have no idea how far I'll go. How far? Tell me. Sure, we've been horrible to each other, but we had something. We still do. We haven't passed any point of no return. I have. I'm not convinced. Nobody who makes pate this good can be all bad. That depends on what the pate is made of. Woof. That was Kathleen Turner and Michael Douglas as Barbara and Oliver Rose in 1989's The War of the Roses, written by Michael Leeson and very, very heavily directed (laughs) by Danny DeVito. (laughs) Well, maybe it was, in fact, because the movie is not that beloved 
by us or by film spotting listeners that it was one of the lowest turnouts ever. Or maybe, Josh, it's because I certainly couldn't do Michael Douglas and you didn't really pull off no, the throaty Kathleen No, I need to apologize. But who can? Well, it should be easy, actually. <laughs> and I was dreadful. Well, David Enna didn't feel you were so dreadful in Charlotte, North Carolina. He writes in, this was the easiest ever. The second I heard Josh's throaty vocals, I knew it was War of the Roses. Adam, I'm amazed that you didn't even put an ounce of effort into your Michael Douglas. <laughs> Think Kirk Douglas and tone that down by half. And you have it. Well, there you go. Now, now, where was that direction, Josh, <laughs> when I needed it? I might have been able to pull it off if I had thought Kirk Douglas and then toned it down by I half. I was clearly having my own issues. I guess. Tie-ins with 45 Years. That was the film that we recommended and reviewed the same week we performed this scene. Both films are about marriage, of course, and this is entirely personal, but I maintain massive crushes on both stars, Kathleen Turner after Body Heat and Charlotte Rampling after Georgie Girl, Farewell My Lovely, Orca, etc., etc. These are two women with incredible star power and sexual magnetism at any age. I'll go so far as to add, forget Orca and Farewell My Lovely. After 45 years, Charlotte Rampling is still beautiful and gorgeous at whatever age she is at currently. I'm just glad my performance didn't ruin that for David. (laughs) Indeed. Christopher Jones said, my mother took me to see this movie when I was eight. I guess she thought it was going to be another one of those Turner slash Douglas romantic action movies and didn't realize it was actually Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf on cocaine. (laughs) That was the line that got this in. (laughs) We had to read that. Because that's a great description. It brought a lot of fears to my young mind about marriage and being an adult. Luckily, I didn't bring the flaws of the two characters to my own marriage. Thanks, Mom. (laughs) Thank you, Christopher. Thank you, David. And to everyone, though it was a low turnout, who entered Massacre Theater last week. Josh, reach into the not-so-brimming film spotting hat and pick out this week's winner. The winner is Beth Etter from the Twin Cities. Congratulations, Beth. Beth has been listening, I think, for a very long time. I want to say I found an email going back to maybe 2006 from Beth. So thank you very much. Email feedback at filmspotting.net to claim your very own film spotting t-shirt. Dracula requires presence. It, it's all in the eyes and the bones and the head. That's right. That's right. You seem a little agitated. You want to go outside and get some air? I'm ready now. Roll the camera. You're probably not going to need the hints, but Josh is wearing his sandals. I am wearing a sword. We are all prepared. Full Hail Caesar regalia. Oh. This should be fun. I really don't think we need to set it up with anything else, Josh. I started off. You're going to give me the direction. Are you ready for this? We'll find out. Let's see if your teeth are properly clenched. I'm I'm putting them in the right position. Okay. Now, action. Look to the West. Don't be a fool. Look to Rome. I would rather be a fool than a traitor or a killer. I am a soldier. Yes, who kills for Rome, and Rome is evil. I warn you. No, I warn you. Rome is an affront to God. Rome is strangling my people and my country, the whole earth, but not forever. I tell you, the day Rome falls, there will be a shout of freedom such as the world has never heard before. Either you help me or you oppose me. You have no other choice. You're either for me or against me. If that is the choice... Then I am against you. You can't laugh over my lines. Oh, I can. And And I did. And scene. (laughs) It all paid off. It all paid off with that last line, Josh. Really. Let's try to be professional. No, no, let's not. If you know what film we just massacred and... You probably do, whether you've seen it or not. Email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline is Monday, 
February 22nd. I actually haven't seen this film, so imagine that. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced in a couple of weeks to get official Massacre Theater rules. Visit filmspotting.net. Hey, man. How do you do, dude? I wonder if I'd see you again. I wouldn't miss the semis. How oh, things yeah? been going? Oh, you know, strikes and gutters, ups and downs. Sure, I got you. Yeah. Thanks, Gary. Well, take care, man. Gotta get back. Sure. Take it easy, dude. Oh, yeah. I know that you will. Yeah, well, the dude abides. <laughs> The dude abides. I don't know about you, but I take comfort in that. It's good knowing he's out there. The dude taking her easy for all us sinners. Shush. I sure hope he makes the finals. We'll see how the dude abides this top five. We're sharing our top five Cone Brothers characters, and I thought that it might behoove us, Josh, to start with an email from a listener we just got here as we were preparing for this top five, because it turns out his head was in a very similar place as ours. Longtime listener Kenny Meyer in Boulder, Colorado, said, thanks for the great shows recently, as always, especially the live rap party, which my sister Jamie and I will be attending in 2017. I love that they're making plans. We better deliver, Josh. Yeah, I was going to say. They're going to be attending all the way from California and Colorado. Wow. We film spotters sure are nerdy, but that's just how awesome you guys are. Thank you, Kenny. I guess we got to do a show now. We do. He goes on. I've been thinking a lot about your upcoming top five. There are so many great characters to choose from. Quirky and fully humanized performances, icons delivering some of the best dialogue ever written. So how do you choose the best? I think a good way to start is by eliminating the obvious. But for this task, simply making it a memorial list just won't cut it because we all have at least five characters in their lines that pop into mind when we hear the Coen brothers. So Kenny shares with us his top five Pantheon Coen brothers performances that he thinks we should consider omitting because of their inevitable inclusion on any rational list. And Josh, it turns out, we were in the exact same headspace as Kenny Meyer. We decided to do the same thing. And I won't share his top five here because it actually crosses over into some that we decided weren't so obvious and might just end up on our final list. But he leads it off. Number one, Jeff, the dude Lebowski. And number two, Margie and Fargo. Kenny says the sweetest, toughest, most heart-wrenching and side-splitting of all Cone movie performances. So we agreed with him, right? We both felt like any top five list that didn't have them near the top was probably not very good. They were both our one and two, right? They were our one and and two, two, right. And then maybe not necessarily number three for both of us, but certainly in the top five, H.I. McDonough Mm -hmm. from Raising Arizona. Nicolas Cage. Love that Nicolas Cage performance. So we did set those three aside. They are in our pantheon of Cone Brothers characters. And for what it's worth, because of Hail Caesar, but also based on their last couple movie releases, a lot of websites have done what we're doing right now and ranked Coen Brothers characters. IGN did a top 25, Rolling Stone just did a top 25, and IndieWire did their top 65. That was exhaustive. It was exhaustive. We'll link to all three in our show notes. But that character, H.I. McDonough, the IndieWire list had him at three. Rolling Stone had him way down at nine. IGN had him at four. The dude, number two across the board, 
and Marge Gunderson number one across the board. So we feel pretty good about setting those three aside as we get into our list, which, Josh, we will do now. Do you want to set up how you approach this after you set those ones aside? Did you have any really defining criteria or just the ones that immediately came to mind as your favorite? Well, I'll just say that theoretically this was supposed to make it easier, right? But as that list of 64 or 5 suggests, there are so many, it really wasn't any easier to try to choose among them. So the degree of difficulty remained. I thought maybe I'll try to separate, we were calling it Coen Brothers characters. So like the character as envisioned by them from the performance given, Hmm. but in the end that wasn't really helpful. And how do you do it? It's, It's not fair to the actors too. So no, I don't know how I did this, but I did it and I have a list. Okay. Well, we'll see if you came through, if you were successful, you're number five. Number five is Jerry Lundegaard, William H. Macy from Fargo. Heck you mean. He's a common Cohen type. He's drawn from the film noir tradition, obviously, another of these criminally aspirational schlubs who gets in over his head. Macy's Jerry Lundegaard is my favorite of these, though, because the desperation just oozes from this guy. He was already my number two inept criminal on episode 424. Um, so you can listen to what I had to say about him there. I'm going to reference that IndieWire list, which was put together by Jessica Kiang and Oliver Littleton. Here's what they had to say about him. Jerry Lundegaard is a brilliant mixture of pathetic, hateful, and completely understandable. Nobody does sweaty desperation, scrubbing at that list of car registrations, hanging up on angry creditors, sitting across from McDormand's implacable Marge, or taking it out on his iced up car windscreen like Macy does here. Nobody. I think it's the completely understandable part that I really agree with Hmm. when they describe him that way. I think Lundegaard and much of Fargo really is perhaps the closest Cohen film to the way a lot of Hitchcock movies work because it implicates us in the crime by making us empathize with uh, this would-be criminal. His flound- Jerry's floundering is ours. That's how mm. it feels to me. And it makes it, uh, it makes the whole movie that much sweatier. Yeah. No, that's a good point. And I've maybe said this on the show before, but I do always go back to that scene they were talking about where he goes out to his parking garage. The car has been outside. It's been the worst day ever for him. Things couldn't go more wrong, but he still has to get out and clean off the windshield and even that goes badly right. and we've all been there right. we haven't As been we, we all have been exactly yeah right. exactly where jerry lundegaard is i hope right but but we've all been in a similar floundering situation and those touches are so wonderful speaking of so wonderful my number five is cy abelman <laughs> That's just a, that was a pretty good sign. Just one of the perfectly named characters in Coen Brothers history. Where I think if you use that voice more often, we I wouldn't should. get his. We wouldn't no, get you're right. So I'll just, many I'll arguments. just tone it way back. But it sounds like he's sighing when he speaks, and he is an able man. Unlike, of course, Larry Gopnik, his foil in that movie. Fred Melamed, the great performance in A Serious Man. I did know anything about Fred Melamed. It turns out that he had been in some Woody Allen movies, seven of them actually by my count, but mostly uncredited or he was just a voice. He was completely unknown to me, had done some TV work. And after A Serious Man, I then later saw him in the Lake Bell movie. He's very good in In a World where he plays a legendary voiceover artist, which makes sense with, of course, those pipes that he has. And we are going to see Fred Melamed in Ishtar at the end of our Elaine May Marathon. I don't know how big of a part he has, but he is in that movie. Of course, Cy Abelman having an affair with Larry Gopnik's wife, Judith. And the sit-down at Embers is just one of my favorite Coen Brothers scenes ever. It's come to be anyway. The entire point of this conversation is to push Larry out of his own house. Larry really is 
arguably the victim in this scenario. And yet, Sai is so soothing Mm -hmm. and reassuring and rational that by the end of the conversation, not only is Larry moving out, but you're convinced he should move out. You're convinced (laughs) it's the right thing to do. Sai is right. He's probably right about everything he's ever considered in his life. He is, after all, a serious man. And it's so ingenious of the cones that he looks like an even bigger schlub than Larry. So you can see how Larry is even more perplexed by the situation because he can't fathom that his wife is leaving him for Cy Abelman. But even as absurd as he is, Fred Melvin makes you see why she should. Because unlike Larry, he is an able man. He is a man of purpose. Judith and I wanted merely to discuss... Uh practicalities, living arrangements. After all, this is an issue where no one is at odds. Living arrangements? I think we all agree that uh, the children not being contaminated with the tension, most important. We shouldn't put the kids in the middle of this, Larry. The kids aren't. I'm saying we. I'm not pointing fingers. No one is playing the blame game now. I didn't say anyone was. Well, let's not play he said, she said either. I I wasn't. All right, look, look, look. Let's just take a step back and, and we can diffuse the situation. To keep things on an even keel leading up to Danny's bar mitzvah. Child's bar mitzvah. Sai and I think it's best if you move out of the house. Move out. Well, it makes eminent sense. Things can't continue as Move out? Where would I go? Well, for instance, the Jolly Roger is quite livable. It's not expensive. The rooms are eminently habitable. This would allow you to visit the kids. There's convenience in its favor. You've got a pool. Wouldn't it make more sense for you to move in with Cy? Larry. Larry, you, you are jesting. I think, really, the Jolly Roger is the appropriate course of action. Just the way he stops to enunciate those certain keywords, no one is playing the blame game, Larry, is is just so great. And we got an email from Jeff Shrek, a listener in Englishtown, New Jersey, who sent his top five Coen Brothers characters in, but he called it his otherworldly antagonist edition because that is a familiar trope sure. with certain characters. You might get one or two more of them on my list as we get through it, but I never would have thought of Fred Melamed as one of the same sort of devilish characters like the ones I'm going to mention. And yet there is something otherworldly about him. He even does appear as an abuser in a dream that Larry has or a nightmare that he has. So Jeff makes a really good point. He says he's being just so aggressively nice to Larry that he appears to not even realize the suffering he's causing. But of course he does. And that really comes through in Melamed's performance. I love Cy Abelman. And he's the first, I think, of probably a handful of, I don't even know if you'd call them supporting characters, who mm-hmm. are probably going to make our list, which I think speaks a lot to the richness of the Cohen films and the performances in them. No, you're dead on. And I, in fact, called Cy less of a supporting character. I see him as more of a scene stealer, yeah. right? The guy who just appears and every time he does, yep. you're kind of happy he's back on screen. But you're so right that my list, my final top five, even after breaking down lead, supporting, and scene stealers, and they came out equal. I had nine or ten in each category that I love. My final top five really was comprised of mostly supporting players and a couple scene stealers. Scene stealer definitely describes my number four. It's Jesus, Quintana, John Turturro, and the Big Lebowski. (laughs) I mean, once we set aside those canon picks, it opened the door for the Jesus. The lavender bowling outfit, complete with hairnet, of course. The tongue, the pelvis, the name itself. When they came up with Jesus, Quintana, I don't think that the Coens or John Turturro said no to any 
outlandish idea or suggestion that came up on the set or in the script writing room. They just kept saying yes, and this is what we ended up with. The result, of course, it means that he's offensive in about six different ways because there's no restraint in this characterization. But there's also something giddily dangerous and exhilarating about that, too. I mean, Mm -hmm. watching his scenes again, and I've seen these dozens of times, of course, but you still get the sense that anything could happen at any moment. And this is, of course, why the deadpan responses from the dude, Donnie and Walter, are just so great. I mean, how else do you respond Mm -hmm. to what's going on here? Now, you could say that uh, Jesus hardly has enough screen time to even qualify. He's he's definitely a scene stealer, but I think he only gets two maybe scenes to steal, Hmm. maybe three. Um, But I think if you apply a ratio that's something like, you know, seconds in front of the camera to (laughs) Coen Brothers' infamy, I had to give him a slot. Yeah, he should be number one (laughs) by by that rationale. My number four, we talked about him earlier in the show. He's so good. I love him so much that he's jumping into the top five despite the fact that he's this new. Hobie Doyle, Alden Ehrenreich. It's a brave move. I I loved him that much. I mean, I would go back and watch the movie, honestly, just to watch his His scenes scenes. again. That's how much I enjoyed it. And I mentioned those otherworldly antagonists, as Jeff put it. There's also that familiar line of characters in Coen Brothers films who are the naive do-gooders, like Norval Barnes, probably the best example, Tim Robbins in The Hudsucker Proxy. But Hobie, I have the same word, of course, here in my notes that you brought up, Josh. He has the earnestness of Norval and some of the naivete, too, but he isn't a moron. The one thing that separates That's him true. from— Yeah, he's yeah. really not— an That's idiot. A distinction. He might be simple in some ways. He's not Hollywood, but he definitely is not dumb. We actually see him take a more active mm-hmm. part in the film than we probably would have expected him to. He's the one who to. figures out what's going on. He puts two and two together. Exactly. So he's a smart guy. And the one thing that separates him from every other person in the movie is he's guileless. There's no duplicity about Hobie Doyle at all. In a town and in an industry where deceit is basically a form of currency— He's just exactly who he is. And I think that's what's so refreshing about seeing him on screen. We don't see a lot of characters like that in general. We definitely don't see them in Hail Caesar. And there's also just something thrilling in general watching characters on screen who are good at their jobs. And there's nothing more funny than watching people try and try but fail at their jobs. And Hobie gets to do both of those things for us, right? In his element, he's the crack shot, the trick roper, the expert horseman who can also sing and play the guitar, right? I mean, he sounds like Ricky Nelson. It's wonderful. But outside his element, he can barely open a door. He can't walk. (laughs) He can't sit. He can't speak. But again, because he is exactly who he is all the time, he performs both with the same level of commitment and focus. And that's really the genius of Aaron Reich's performance. Chet, Rabbi Scott, communist writer number four. There's a lot of potential names yes. that might still make our favorite Cohen characters list. The film Spotting Top 5 wraps up next. Stay with us. Some days I'm golden Other days I'm bad All depends on the weather and how many drinks I've had But I keep on moving Baby, I can't slow down The last few years it's been a struggle To get along and hang around Now the city is fast asleep I'll go up these empty streets 
Hey folks, quick interruption as we want to share some thank yous and some comments that came in with our donations this week as usual. But first, as usual, we're going to start with a mention of our featured artist this week, Nebraska native Josh Rouse, with music from his 11th studio album, The Embers of Time. More information at joshrouse.com. That's R-O-U-S-E. A little bit of a light week for the donations, Josh, so it gives us some time to have a little bit of fun with a couple of recent emails. And this first one, we probably don't really need to share because the reality is I only got two comments along these lines. And I was worried about it. I thought I had said it diplomatically enough and wasn't being dismissive or snarky in any way, but we got a couple comments. So just to put it to bed, if anyone out there was having some second thoughts about it, here's an email from Justin W. Sanders, who says, Adam, your dismissive comments about the works of Roald Dahl were somewhat shocking to hear, given my extremely high opinion of you as a critic and knower of things culturally important. Well, Justin, that was your first mistake. I know we can't ingest everything, but Dahl is a storyteller of massive influence to say nothing of how wildly entertaining nearly everything he wrote was. Even if you don't consider the film adaptations of his work, which do, mind you, include classics such as The Original Chocolate Factory, Matilda, Witches, and Fantastic Mr. Fox, to be important enough to make the BFG something to be excited about, the books alone have shaped the very fabric of narrative as we know it. His unique blend of twisted humor and authentic warmth has infused children's tales across the board, and they are richer for it. That's all. Sorry. Had to say it. Love your show. So this came up in connection with our 2016 movie preview, The BFG Was Your Number One, and really, I was just admitting that he doesn't mean yeah, anything think, to me. Yeah, only because you're being dismissive. No, I, I can't be. I am not familiar with his work. And that was really my point. I actually feel quite bad about it. Well, and what Justin needs to know is at the age that most people are reading Roald Dahl, you were watching The World According to Garb. I so was constantly. You had other things and going my on. My mind has been warped and I can't appreciate the works of Roald Dahl probably. Anyway, OK, this is going to be fun. We got this bit of feedback just yesterday, Josh, and it's. So great. It makes me love our listeners so much. In direct response to the email we read from Lisa Iannucci last week in this very segment, chastising us for our pronunciation, our incorrect pronunciation of the actress Rooney Mara, who she says is correctly Rooney Mara. Mara, yeah. Yes. And we wait, sort wait. of just took her. I went through extensive training to get I myself bet. to always say Rooney Mara. Are you telling me that that was well, not the right thing to do? Well, Let's read Ray in Gulfport, Florida's email. All right. Before getting to my refutation of Lisa Iannucci's correction of your pronunciation of Rooney Mara's name, I think that sense alone just <laughs> speaks to what we go through here. Oh, yeah. I would first note the inherent futility of a Northeasterner attempting to convey to a pair of Midwesterners like yourselves how to pronounce an intervocalic R. Those are our listeners. This is a complicated issue related to what linguists call the Mary, Mary, Mary merger. Yeah. See here, here. it's a Wikipedia link. I clicked on it. You can go down that rabbit hole for a long time. And 
I didn't understand any of it. In short, Ray continues, we Northeasterners, I'm a Jersey native, though in Florida these days, express vowels before an R in a multitude of ways that you in the Midwest do not. Lisa is correct in one sense. It is true that the, I don't even know what to say Just anymore. Just say Mara Mara for now. family, including Sister Kate, historically has pronounced their name in a way that sounds like <laughs> Mara. Is it, my mind is so it's marinara sauce. Is it marinara or yes, marinara it's, now? It's marinara sauce. Which I is don't what, think we can get which is what this Lisa said. Kate Mara Mara conversation until we settle marinara or marinara first. <laughs> it's definitely marinara, though I guess as Midwesterners we shouldn't be saying it How that way. How would we know? Although, Ray continues, it should be noted that the way Northeasterners like the Mara family would say that word, Mara, is a bit different than the way you guys do. Mara. Well, Mara. Uh, no, Mara. it's actually Mara. He's making the distinction between... If you're looking at it spelled out in a way that linguists would understand, M-A-E-R-A versus M like an E-I-R-A. You have to go to that Wikipedia page to really understand this, and even then you won't understand it. I just took some aspirin while you were saying that, and I feel like now I can continue. I mean, it's down to the way you might pronounce the word Mary, M-A-R-Y, differently than M-A-R-R-Y, even though we kind of say them the same. Correct. Oh, man. However, Ray Here's the good still stuff. continues. Here's the good More stuff. importantly, to the specific discussion here, Rooney Mara does in fact break from the family and chooses to pronounce her name as Mara, like Tiara, which also happens to be closer to the traditional pronunciation of that Irish surname. In fact, here's a clip of Kate taking a swipe at her younger sister's pronunciation on a recent episode of Jimmy Kimmel. Keep up the good work, guys, and always get a second opinion before you issue a correction. (laughs) Good advice. Sound advice from Ray. And we will link to that clip in the show notes on Jimmy Kimmel. I did watch it. Kate Mara appearing on Jimmy Kimmel. And just for the record, I went completely with what Lisa was selling. Mm -hmm. And the reason I did was because being someone who's paid attention to football a little bit over the years, I'm aware of the fact that the Mara family owns the New York Giants, Mm -hmm. and I think another Mara owns the Pittsburgh Steelers. And they never refer to Wellington Mara, the patriarch, as Wellington Mara. Never heard that. It's always Wellington Mara. So I assumed that, well, yeah, Lisa's probably right, and we've been saying it wrong this whole time as Rooney Mara. Of course, now wrong and right even come into question because we're Midwesterners and we get to speak differently. Then Northeasterners. I think that's what we just go with. I think that's what we or, go with. Or is from now Ray on. the final? Do I have to go back to the official no, you know what? Body Look, pronunciation guide and change this? Well, I think we have to update it. We have to update it because if you watch that Jimmy Kimmel clip, it is true that Kate, when asked directly by Jimmy, the pronunciation is Mara, right? And she says, "Yes, it is." But she says, even though it's often gotten wrong by people, including my sister. So very clearly, there suggesting that. Rooney prefers to say it, Mara. So it's Rooney Mara. It is. Kate, Kate Mara. Mara. Yep. That's how we And that's it. what we're I, going I'm with. I'm glad we have our whole nother I don't topic care. <laughs> to carry us through 2016. I don't care what further emails we get unless it's from a member of the Mara family or Please Mara family. Save us. The case is closed as far as we're concerned. Let's get to our donations. A quick thank you to Gregory in Irvine, California. And a Silver Club donation. Thank you. To Emily Martin in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, with a great dedication here. 
My brother Adam and I are donating $50 as a gift to our father, Charlie Martin, from Milledgeville, Georgia, who has been a dedicated film spotting listener for years and was the one who initially got me into your show. Adam and I joke that our dad never ends up using the gifts we get for him, but we doubt he'll stop listening to film spotting. So by donating to you, we will have successfully given him a gift that he has to use. So with that, happy Chinese New Year to the best dad ever. Thanks so much for everything you guys do and keep up the good work. Josh, maybe one day we'll get our Sofia Coppola Little Mermaid movie. <laughs> the one you made up in your head anyway? No, it existed. <laughs> I don't believe For it. For a brief, wonderful time. Yeah, no, I'm not buying, Josh. Sorry. Thank you, Emily. Thank you, Adam. And thank you to Charlie for continually loving the show. We do appreciate it. A new $5 a month donor, Sarah in Seattle. $10 a month, Andrew in Corona, California. And a new Platinum Club donor, Karen, pronounced... C-A-R-E-N. Maybe it's Karen. I'm not sure. And I had to look this up. Because Let's get Ray it's, on it. Yeah, we should get Ray on it. He should be our go-to. Ray is now going to be the official film spotting oh, pronunciator. You don't know what you just did, Ray. <laughs> Karen is in Pennsylvania in a place called Bala Kinwood. It's spelled B-A-L-A-C-Y-N-W-Y-D. But I didn't check with Ray. What I found online was Bala Kinwood, Pennsylvania. I'm going to wait to hear what Ray says. This is Josh Brolin. You're listening to Film Spotting? That's a question. I'm telling you, Smitty, the board of Hudson is up to something. Hey, what's a six-letter word for an affliction of the hypothalamus? And yeah. it's a cinch. Goiter, it's a cinch. This guy isn't in on it. Oh, she's right here. How much time to make the late final? Chief. Hiya, Chief. Just the person I wanted to apologize to. About seven minutes. Yeah, I was all wet about your idea, man. Well, thanks for being so generous. It is human, and you are divine. No, no, he's no faker. He's 100% real McCoy. Beware of imitations, genuine article. The guy's a real moron. As in a five-letter word for imbecile. Oh, as pure a specimen as I've ever run across. Okay, fortunately, the August doesn't make me an expert, but my name is Amy Archer, and I never won the Pulitzer Prize in 1957. This is Film Spotting with Adam and Josh, and that was Jennifer Jason Lee, the Oscar-nominated Jennifer Jason Lee, as Amy Archer in the Coen Brothers' The Hudsucker Proxy. A good clip to play because Jennifer Jason Lee is hilarious in that role, and she's not going to quite make our top five, so we get to give her some love there. And a perfect segue into our number three picks here, Josh, as I believe we both have a couple of great female characters from the Coen Brothers in this slot. My number three is Verna, Marsha Gay Harden from Miller's Crossing. Verna's probably, in my mind, the icy queen of the Cohen Femme Fatales. I think you could include Frances McDormand has played that part for them. Catherine Zeta-Jones, I think, and Julianne Moore maybe as well, a little bit. But Verna's at the top, and she comes from my favorite Cohen Brothers movie, Miller's Crossing. They're owed to 1930s gangster pictures that also stands as its own rich tragedy. So the question when I was thinking about this is, what does Verna do differently than not only those characters I mentioned, but almost every other femme fatale I can think of? And for me, it's that if you watch her, she's actually thoroughly honest about her intentions. There's some subterfuge going on because this is such a gnarled plot that that's what it turns on. But she's very clear with Tom. This is the mob advisor played by Gabriel Byrne. Right from the start, at the end of the day, she's going to do what she has to do in order for her and her brother, John Turturro again, 
to survive. So despite that, she still manages to have both Tom and Leo, this is Tom's boss played by Albert Finney, wrapped around her finger. I mean, her pull is that strong that they know what she's doing and she manages to do it anyway. Now, Miller's Crossing is a movie of really rough men and brutal, brutal violence. And Vern is the only notable woman in it, but she is unflinching. I mean, she does flinch, but it's always strategically. And I think Hardin brings a number of levels to the performance so that you can follow how Verna is always playing Hmm. the angles, even as she's doing it. The definitive moment for me in terms of her sense of command comes very early on. So we get a real good idea of who we're dealing with here. This is after she and Tom have this violent confrontation in a nightclub. She just calmly fixes her hair and says, I suppose you think you've raised hell. He tries to offer a witty response, but if you watch the scene, notice how the Cohen's camera has already started moving away from him, just diminishing him and the power that he has. So after Marge Gunderson, uh, for me, the second strongest woman character the Coens have hmm. created is is possibly Verna okay. in Miller's Crossing. Well, I've lamented this here before, but Miller's Crossing is a film for me, a Coen Brothers film, that I claim to love because I remember loving it when... I saw it the first time. Unfortunately, it's still the only time I've seen it. And I can't believe this as you were talking. I did the math real quick in my head, Josh. I saw it just after it came out on VHS shortly after its release, which means early 90s. Gosh, 25 years ago was the last time I saw Miller's Crossing. So I remember almost nothing Hmm. of Marsha Gay Harden's performance and that character, very sadly. In fact, about the only thing I really remember from Miller's Crossing is Bernie, the John Turturro character. Yeah, that scene's hard to forget. Yeah, it really is. My number three is my favorite female character in the Coen Brothers universe. I couldn't put her husband on the list because H.I. McDonough was put in the Pantheon, but Edwina Ed McDonough, played so capably by Holly Hunter in Raising Arizona, is my number three. And I really don't think I can sum her up any better than... Tim Grierson does, a fine critic, in the Rolling Stone ranking, the top 25 Cone characters, they have Edwina at number 16. And Tim says, her Ed is part Lady Macbeth, part moral compass, part quietly fuming voice of reason. She's the straight woman amidst this collection of bozos and reprobates. But the actress also provided the character with a flinty sex appeal that was both vulnerable and alluring. She's the kind of woman you'd want to grow old with in Arizona, or maybe Utah. A nice touch. So the chase scene, the classic just one of the best chase scenes in movie history the i'll be taking these huggies whatever cash you got scene where hi reverts to his life of crime it's not only a tour de force comedic cone brothers scene in every way but it's a showcase i think for everything that makes holly hunter's ed so much fun to watch and just so complex as a character there's first the escalation of her outrage just watching him as she discovers what he's really up to she goes Just like that, from the adoring mother playing with her baby in the front seat to shrieking spouse. But I really think it's the culmination of the scene. It's her confrontation after she picks up her husband, where we see all of her dimensions. Thank you, honey. But you really didn't have to do this. You son of a bitch, you acting like a mad dog. What if me and the baby been picked up? Turn away, dear. Nathan Jr. would have been an accessory to armed robbery. No, it ain't armed robbery if the gun ain't loaded. What kind of home life is this for, Tyler? You're supposed to be an example. What, did this man? Uh-huh. I never postured myself as a three-piece suit type. Turn right, honey. We got a child now. Everything's changed. Well, Nathan Jr. accepts me for what I am. And I think you better have two. You know, honey, I'm okay, you're okay, that there's what it is. I know, but honey... See, I come from a long line of frontiersmen and... Oh, here it is, dear, turn here. 
frontiersmen and outdoor cops. I'm not gonna live this way, huh? It just ain't family life. Well, it ain't Ozzy and Harriet. Her indignance and self-righteousness at his failure, including the punch to the face, her desire to protect the family, which overrides everything, the plea for him to be a proper husband and father, and the way she says everything's changed, the way she draws out changed. But despite her toughness and her anger, that vulnerability always comes through in Edwina. She does love H.I. Against all of her better judgment, she does love him, and she does love her family, and she's going to do whatever she can to keep it together. Now I'm even sorrier that we weren't able to squeeze in the sacred cow review of Raising Arizona. We had, we had flirted with That's true. But, oh, I want to watch that again. That's no, so good. My number two is Anton Chigurh, the heavy-lidded hitman of No Country for Old Men, played by Javier Bardem. The scariest thing about this guy, I think, is that he's, he's operating – Somewhere in between a moral and an amoral universe. He, he's not either, really. It, he has this sense of purpose, but we can't fully fathom it. We can't mm-hmm. really get our minds around it. it. It's as if it's coming from another planet. And uh, we, we, you see this like in the scene where he's talking to Woody Harrelson and he, Woody tries to bribe him and he yeah. repeats the word ATM like it's an alien concept yeah, to him. And, yeah. and this is like, you know, the Woody character <laughs> thinks he's playing his best card uh-huh. and it just has no, no effect. No effect. I'm a day trader. I could just go home. You could. Make it worth your while. Take you to an ATM. There's 14 grand in it. Everybody just walks away. An ATM? I know where the satchel is. If you knew you would have it with you. I could find it from the riverbank. I know where it is. I know something better. What's that? I know what it's going to be. Where's that? It will be brought to me and placed on my feet. You don't know to a certainty. 20 minutes, it could be here. I do know to a certainty. And you know what's going to happen now, Carson? You should admit your situation. There will be more dignity in it. You go to hell. Mm. All right. Let me ask you something. If the rule you followed brought you to this, of what use was the rule? Do you have any idea how crazy you are? You mean the nature of this conversation? I mean the nature of you. Bardem is amazing because he's usually an actor I associate with having just life force spilling out of him. And that's even when he's playing reserved characters. You know, there's a clear vitality there. But what he does here is it's like he's dead. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's the blank stare. He's still. He's quiet. His conversations are very patient. He just has this stillness that has a gravitational pull. So he brings every scene that he's in to this standstill. Sugar is almost – he's a hitman, but – He's almost more of a hypnotist. He's he's like this reverse cobra who's just mm. lulling the victims in before it strikes. Yeah. Well, we'll go with another devil character in the Coen Brothers universe with my number two, Charlie Meadows, John Goodman in Barton Fink, mainly because I love the character, but also because any list of Coen Brothers characters without John Goodman, I think is invalid, <laughs> Josh. So you got one more slot left. We'll, we'll see, see whether or not 
your list is just completely wrong and misguided or not. But of course, he's been featured a lot in Coen Brothers films. Raising Arizona, Gail Snotes, The Big Lebowski is Walter, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, as Big Dan Teague, Inside Lewin Davis, the jazz musician is Roland Turner. And he was also the narrator in The Hudsucker Proxy. So the Coen Brothers have gone to the John Goodman well many times and for good reason. And I found an interview with Goodman that came out upon the release of Inside Lewin Davis, and he was asked for his favorite character, not just Coen Brothers movies, any movie he's been in, his favorite character. And he actually, after listing a bunch of really good ones, including Walter from The Big Lebowski, he said this, Charlie Meadows and Barton Fink, because he was very sympathetic. For a man who was a snake, that is. He was someone I could sink my teeth into. Homicidal maniac, but kind of a nice guy. You don't get many of those. So you talk about contradictions in Mm -hmm. characters, right? When you do discover Charlie Meadows' true nature at the end of Barton Fink, you're disappointed (laughs) because he is such a warm character, wink, wink. You love when he's around. You love every time when he breaks the pretentious monotony and the loneliness and isolation of Barton's world, which is Barton's hotel room. And of course, anybody's going to seem warm by comparison because Barton is such a cold narcissist. But I wonder how many actors could really bring both of those elements so convincingly, that genuine warmth and the madness. I think he probably is the prototypical Coen Brothers actor because he can be big and theatrical, certainly, and elevate the absurdity, but he can also be so subtle that he grounds the absurdity. And we see both of those elements in Charlie Meadows. He is a sympathetic character. I think John Goodman's exactly right because you get the sense that, like Barton, he's so lonely. He's just looking for someone to connect with. And my favorite John Goodman moments in that entire film, unfortunately, don't lend themselves to radio at all, Josh, because they're reaction shots. But twice in response to Barton, who's just ironically waxing on about the struggle of men like Charlie, the common men whose stories he's trying to tell, despite the fact that both times Charlie says, I could tell you some stories. What does Barton do? He can't stop pontificating long enough to actually listen to those stories that might be of some use to him. And the faces, those faces, just the exasperation. The, the longing to share his stories. He's crushed with Barton. when he, he doesn't He really get to. is crushed. But then also it, it does start to turn into a little bit of anger, mm-hmm. right? You see There's that, a hint that menace. Yeah, the menace that is certainly within him. Strange as it may seem, Charlie, I, I guess I write about people like you. The average working stiff, the common man. Well, ain't that a kick in the head? Yeah, I guess it is. But in a way, that's exactly the point. There's a few people in New York... Hopefully our numbers are growing. Who feel we have an opportunity now to forge something real out of everyday experience. Create a theater for the masses based on a few simple truths. Not on some shop-worn abstractions about drama that don't hold true today if they ever did. I, I don't guess this means much to you. Hell yeah, I could tell you some stories. And that's the point, that we all have stories. The hopes and dreams of the common man are as noble as those of any king. The stuff of life. Why shouldn't it be the stuff of theater? And God damn it, why should that be such a hard pill to swallow? Don't call it new theater, Charlie. Call it real theater. Call it our theater. I can see you feel pretty strongly about it. Well, I don't mean to get up on my high horse. But why shouldn't we look at ourselves up there? Who cares about the fifth Earl of Bastrop and Lady Higginbottom and, and 
who killed Nigel Grinch Gibbons. I could feel my butt getting sore already. Exactly, Charlie. You understand what I'm saying a lot more than some of these literary types because you're a real man. And I could tell you some stories. Sure you could, and yet many writers do everything in their power to insulate themselves from the common man, from where they live, from where they trade, from where they fight and love and converse and... and... So maybe my list is invalid because I was starting to think, who's my Cohen MVP? Okay. You know, the actor who has just done the most overall in their movies. And Goodman was my number two. So why isn't he on the list? I don't know. <laughs> I, maybe it's just not one individual role. But who's I can your number down. one? I can't wait. My number one, it's Turturro. And it's uh, for the movie we're talking about. It's okay. for Barton Fink. I mean, this is another irony here, another movie about movies that I'm fully embracing because of how the Coens are going Come about full circle. I like it. subject. Uh, this is their panic-stricken, big-haired mascot for writer's block, right? And in what is a horror movie about stunted creativity. There's such self-critique here in this character, and Turturro is fantastic in bringing a pathetic mixture of insecurity, uh, condescension, what you were talking yeah. about with, with the scene with Goodman. But also, I think this is why, it's for me, it's more is that there is a real sadness in his failure, even as much as we might despise him or see what he's doing and, you know, how myopic he's being, uh, there's still that sadness that resonates, at least with me. I mean, no wonder this also was a commercial flop, mm-hmm. right? It's not exactly inspiring. So, yeah, why is Turturro my MVP? Well, he already made my list with Jesus Quintana. I mentioned his Bernie Birnbaum from Miller's Crossing. And don't forget, he delivers a killer yodel in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? So <laughs> that was 16 years ago, though, Oh Brother. So mm-hmm. I think another you know, one I need to revisit badly. Yeah, it's time for the Coens to bring him back. Yeah, maybe so. Great pick. I really can't argue with the fact that Turturro might, in fact, be the MVP. That would be a great death match Ooh. for the film spotting. And you think it would be those two, Goodman and Turturro? Don't you think it would be? It is for me. Yeah, I mean, just in terms of not only number of quantity of appearances, but also quality. Yeah, how memorable how they memorable. are. Yeah. Well, it wasn't by design, but we do have one overlap pick here, Josh, and I am ending with two of those Cone Brother Devil characters after Charlie Meadows. My number one is Anton Chigurh, Javier Bardem in No Country for Old Men. If he's not the greatest cinematic villain, he belongs in the conversation for sure. You get the sense watching him that he is the personification of chaos and disorder. And I think this speaks to what you were getting at in terms of the contradiction of being someone who's moral and amoral at the same time. I'd argue he's actually the personification of order. If he is after you, it isn't random. You made a choice or a series of choices that led you there. In the case of the gas station attendant who didn't make a choice to confront him, well, Sugar gives him an out. Live or die doesn't really matter to him. Mm-hmm. Nobody's life matters to him. So you might as well let the coin decide. He gives him that opportunity. And that's something he doesn't do with the people who, in his mind, deserve what they are getting from him. And I went back and looked at the voiceover from Tommy Lee Jones's character, the sheriff, Ed Bell. And it really is interesting how his opening narration is everything that comes to fruition in the Shigura character. He talks about how he doesn't recognize the world anymore. The rules seem to have gone away, and he doesn't want to come up against something he just doesn't even understand. And I think that exasperation is really what Shigura's character is the embodiment of. I mean, he is a mythological 
character. He is the Grim Reaper in blue jeans with a bad haircut. And as long as a character like that can exist in the world, then the things that a character like Sheriff Bell is searching for, civility mainly, simply isn't possible. It definitely didn't start with No Country for Old Men, but maybe that was the start of me recognizing how good the Coen brothers were at giving us sometimes generic movies in the sense that they exist within a genre. Right, and yeah, they, the form they're yeah, following. Yeah, exactly. And they are using that form, sometimes subverting it, sometimes just utilizing it to great effect, but then adding on mm-hmm. these thematic layers, these existential layers that play out in a lot of different ways, in ways that overlap greatly over the course of movies like No Country, like The Man Who Wasn't There, A Serious Man, Now On to Hail Caesar. Mm -hmm. Even in films like The Hudsucker Proxy, that battle between good and evil is directly personified and acted out for us at the end of that film. So it's not something that has never been there with the Coen brothers, but maybe is something that has come to the fore even a little bit more. So I think our strategy worked. We only had Sugar as a crossover pick by setting those uh, canon picks aside. I like it. Those are our top five Cone Brothers characters. Josh, did you have, well, I know you did. Of course. Many honorable mentions. I need to say them because it hurts me to have left them off. Get them out there. Really, really small part, but so effective. And it's for the same movie, No Country for Old Men. Carla Jean Moss, Kelly McDonald, Mm. the the wife. She gets one of my all-time favorite Cone lines. Referencing the coin? Yeah. The coin don't have no say. I don't know if if that's a Cormac McCarthy line from the book. Maybe, I've read it too, and I don't know. I love the placement and the delivery of it. So, yeah, it's so uh, good. Great character. Sheriff Ed Tombile as well. Um, he might be more of a Cormac McCarthy creation as well, but it works perfectly for the film. Billy Bob Thornton, I am really high on in The Man Who yes, Wasn't you are. There. And I'd pair Gabriel Byrne in Miller's Crossing with him. They're sort of the Coen's most committedly morose characters and really gave a lot of thought to Chad Feldheimer. Brad Pitt is just so funny mm. in Burn After Reading. And there's something that I delight in, in seeing actors we don't associate or don't sure. think as being funny in just getting a chance to to kill it in a comedic role. But I sense yeah. you didn't laugh Well, much. I didn't laugh much at Burn After Reading. I was disappointed really? in it. And it's one of my least favorite, yeah, I would say. I think, but... I think I was still in my anti-Brad Pitt phase at that point. But I just don't think he's good. Again, my familiar boring refrain, I don't think he's good when he's playing characters. And he's definitely playing oh, a character oh, yeah. as Chad <laughs> there in that film. Well, speaking of Chad, we started off this list with Kenny Myers' picks and how he had set aside his pantheon. Jeff at number one, the dude. Margie from Fargo at number two. He had at number three, Walter from The Big Lebowski. Charlie from Barton Fink, my number two, was his number four. And Anton Chigurh was there at number five. But after that, after setting them aside, his official list, eliminating the no-brainers, Norm Gunderson from Fargo, number five. Chad Feldheim at four. Big Dave Brewster, James Gandolfini for The Man Who Wasn't There at three. Carson Wells, Woody Harrelson. I do love Carson Wells. That performance from Woody. Great performance. So good in No Country. And then number one, Gare Grimsrud, Peter Stormare. Oh. Of course. I don't know that you can separate him from Carl. I feel like they're a joint. <laughs> they're a tandem that have yeah, to go together. Yeah, but he's more of the Shigur character, I feel like, where you're just not quite sure what's oh, that's going a good on point. in there. Yeah. No, that's that's he's he's much scarier. Mm-hmm. There's no doubt about that. A couple that I certainly considered, we mentioned Sheriff Ed Tom Bell, Maddie Ross, Haley Steinfeld in True Grit. I definitely thought about John Turturro as Barton in Barton Fink. Those were on the lead side. From the supporting side, I did think about Amy in the Hudsucker Proxy. The others, I managed to get onto my list. From the scene stealers, beyond Cy Abelman, Freddie Riedenschneider, Tony Shalhoub, and the man who was there yeah. as the lawyer is great. Obviously, Jesus, Jesus Quintana in The Big Lebowski. And I do love Arthur Gopnik 
He's a scene stealer in A Serious Man. The brother, Richard Kind, is you a great really love A Serious character. Man, I've huh? come to love that movie. I absolutely have. There are many more we could name. We know that you will share those names with us. Send us your picks or any other comments about the show to feedback at filmspotting.net. Or leave us a voicemail at 312-264-0744. On Twitter, you can find us at filmspotting. That's Adam. At Larson on Film is me. You can also find us at facebook.com slash filmspotting. Over at filmspotting.net, you can find 10 plus years. We're actually coming up on 11 years in a month, Josh. It's going by fast. Yep. 10 years of reviews, marathons, interviews, and top fives in the show archives. While you're there, take a moment to vote in the current film spotting poll, which first-time Oscar nominee you'd most like to see win an Oscar this year. Out in limited release this weekend in the shadow of women, a French love triangle movie. Do the French make other kinds of movies than love triangle movies? From director Philippe Garel and Michael Moore's latest, Where to Invade Next. I do want to see that. I've generally been a fan of Michael Moore's work, and I thought his interview on WTF with Mark Maron was great, so that's That's one I want to see. Out in wide release, How to Be Single. It's a comedy, and you know I'm going to see it because Dakota Johnson's in it. Well, look at that. Along with Allison Brie, Leslie Mann, and Rebel Wilson. While you wait for 51 Shades of Grey. (laughs) 51? Is that what it's going to be called? I'm assuming. I hope so. Zoolander 2, Ben Stiller, oh. Owen Wilson 15 years later. Will this thing please come I know. out already so yeah, we the stop hype. getting press releases about stunts? Deadpool, also out. Ryan Reynolds in The Mask and Spandex, according to next week's guest hosts Tasha and Michael Phillips. Not terrible. So still Sounds expand great. on that a little <laughs> bit, I think. And they are going to discuss the Pilgrims in Peril movie the Witch. Is that an accurate description? Pilgrims in Peril? Um, I'm not sure of the official definition of a pilgrim. Okay. But it is colonial era? Well, that, that works then. It's, it's a few years back, Adam. Uh, fair enough. A period piece it's a is period what you're piece. saying. They'll also share their Oscar picks. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Thanks to associate producer Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at Chicago Public Media. More information is available at chicagopublicmedia.org. Our music this week is by Josh Rouse. More information at joshrouse.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.